0: Alright, so we are beginning a study through 1st and 2nd Peter. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. And a lot of very interesting things in these two small books. And so we're going to jump right into this. And notice in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia. Now, one thing I want to start off right from the beginning, and it's very important, like all these messages, um, you're going to want to like hear all of them because we're going to get to some difficult passages that people get confused by. And I really believe the key to understanding some of these more difficult passages is you have to understand the audience. You have to understand who he is speaking to and what is going on, and what he's specifically dealing with. Often, we just kind of pull things from these passages to support good doctrine, but those verses weren't necessarily written for those things, and as a result, we end up losing meaning when we do that. we got to watch out for that in our Bible study. And so the first thing I want to point out is that I do believe that the, this book is written to Jewish believers, saved Jews, people who were Jewish who were under the Old Testament law at one time, but now there's been a change. Jesus Christ has come, and these are saved Jews that he's writing to. And if you keep that in mind, that's going to help you understand some difficult passages and why he's saying some things the way he's saying it, because it would have been especially relevant to them. And so one of the reasons I believe that he's writing to Jewish believers here is because One, notice how he mentions in the first verse that they are strangers in all these different cities. Now, if they're from these other cities, well, then you're just you're not a stranger; you're a native of that city. You know that's so. uh, You know if I'm you know while I'm in America, I'm not a stranger. This is my where my citizenship is. This is my this is my home. And so, what other group of people would there have been during that time? You know that would. Uh, have be in all those different cities like that, you know, that Peter would especially be addressing, um, that there wouldn't really be any. It would be Jews. And some I think, well, no, it's just because he's talking about Christians, and, you know, as Christians, we're strangers and pilgrims on this world. And I do believe there's kind of a double meaning that he's doing there. I'm going to get to that in a little bit, because they were strangers in two ways. You know, one, they were strangers as Israelites who had been that were scattered all over. But then, two, they were strangers because of the fact that they were Christians. We'll say a little more about that in a little bit. But also, we see the book of James. And I covered this recently in another message. don't remember which one. If you read James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So, we have Hebrews that we know is written to Jews, saved Jews. We've got James That we know is written to save Jews. And then we've got, I believe, 1 and 2 Peter together that are written to save Jews. uh, Jews. And Jude is very similar to some of the things we read in Peter. And so uh, I I believe that these are specifically directed at Jewish Christians. Also, we know that Peter, James, and John, who are all together, their epistles are all together here after the Pauline epistles that are all together. We know that all of those guys were specifically permission to go to the Jews. In Galatians 2.8, it says, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. So, Right there, we have those three guys specifically being mentioned as going to the circumcision. That's what they were doing, and I believe Peter here is writing to the very people that he was sent to minister to, and that's the circumcision, the tribes or the strangers that are scattered abroad, because there were Jews all over the world at that time, uh, because of all the captivity and things that they had gone that they had gone through uh, during their history. And so, here's the thing you got to understand, though, because people get their back up when you point out some of these things, but. You don't have to, okay? There's no reason to get your back up. I get it that Ruckmanites, you know, they kind of use the fact that things are written to Jews as a way to throw certain things out. But here's the thing. The fact that this book was written to the Jews, it doesn't change the fact that they were saved Jews, and therefore what is written is still going to apply to us in many ways. But we've got to recognize there's going to be some things that had a little deeper meaning for that for someone who is a Jew during the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament than to us just like there's going to be some things that Paul said in all of his letters to the specific churches they're going to have a little deeper meaning to them than it does us well, I think everything's ours so I mean you know all the you know I, I believe every command is for us okay well how about when Paul said to salute certain brethren How are you going to do that? Guess what? You can't do that. They're dead. Okay. Now you can take a principle from that. There's nothing wrong with that. And hey, you know, but at the same time, you know, that did, there was special, deeper meaning for them. And so the truth is the more that we can learn about what was going on, then the more we can learn about their situation, it gives us context and it can help us understand Some difficult passages. So verse 2 says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. And obviously, I mean, we can apply this to us because we know that we have sanctification of the Spirit uh, by the, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But do you understand? That would have deeper significance to Jews who actually had a practice of you know, giving uh, offerings and sacrifices where they would sprinkle the blood on things. We've never done that before. But yet, Peter, it's like he likes to emphasize, and things that are written to Jews, they like to emphasize uh, those Old Testament things and how Jesus did it. Because of the fact that that's going to have special meaning to them because they had done those things for so long and they didn't do them for nothing. Those things were all pointing them to Jesus Christ. We don't really need to use those terms as much. It's not, we're not wrong if we do it, but it's not going to have as much significance to us because of the fact we never were under those things. We never practiced those things. So um, I say all that to just say I think that's why we see Peter using a lot of this t- type of terminology that he does. And so a lot of people think, why does it matter who, uh, who it was written to? But the thing is, context... Makes a huge difference, and it's in how we interpret something. And so, uh, I, want, I read this one article about context. I just wanted to read out uh, or point out a few things that it mentioned in there about why context is so important in writing. And you got to understand, if you write a book, it usually, if you're a good writer, you're going to do something setting up the situation, what like giving context for what's going on. Okay. Now, if I'm writing a letter to you here at the church, I don't need to do that, do I? Because of the fact that you all know what's going on here. You know, you guys are going to understand many of the things I say. For example, too, there's been many times people have gotten offended or confused by things they've heard me say from the pulpit because I said things that I didn't give context to, but you all knew You know. But the online crowd... As kind of outsiders, they didn't understand fully what was going on. And we got to understand that can happen too, because these things were specifically letters written to certain groups. And so a lot of times, you know, context can be difficult to find. However, the context that we need to get what God wants us to have, we can find in the Bible. Right? We, we can always do that. But uh, when, you're, when writing historical context is very important. And it says here, you're providing the time period and its current events can inform the general mood of the era, setting the stage for the tone of your piece of writing and creating an understanding of the society at that time. And I think it's very important that when somebody's writing to a group of people who were under the Old Covenant and transitioned to this New Covenant, I think that's important to know. I think it's very important in order to understand First and Second Thessalonians that we go back to Acts and we look at what was going on in Thessalonica. And when we read what was going on in Thessalonica, all of a sudden, there's certain things that Paul said in that letter that have more meaning. And thankfully, the Bible gave us the context of what's being said in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We understand the historical context. We understand the persecution that they were going through during that time, specifically from the Jews. And when you get that, it just opens, it opens the book up. So these things are very important. You know, physical context, the attributes of a place can also inform how a plot unfolds or how a character develops. There's there's cultural context. There's situational context. Now, I'm not going to read through all these things, but I think you all get the point. And so a way I thought to illustrate this, let's suppose that I send a text to someone that simply says, she didn't make it. Okay? Now, that's a text. That's what I sent. It has a very, it, it's, a, it's definitely a message, but it's not clear unless you know the context. And this is kind of an extreme example, all right? But there's a lot of different meaning depending on what I'm responding to, what the situation is. So if somebody is asking me about someone who's fighting for their life in a hospital and someone texts me asking how they're doing, that response would have a very clear meaning, wouldn't it? You know what it would mean? She's dead. This is bad news. All of a sudden, she didn't make it, but the person who asked me that question wouldn't know exactly what I meant by that. But you know, what if someone else is asking how a scheduled meeting went with someone who's a female, uh, and that, that response would be very clear, but definitely a less tragic meeting. So maybe I was supposed to meet up with somebody, and they're like, hey, how'd the meeting go? And I said, she didn't make it. Completely different meeting, isn't it? But yet that person would know exactly what I meant by that. You know, what if I come home with food that I ordered for my wife at a restaurant and she asked, uh, where a specific request that she had is, and I know that the worker didn't make that item, you know, and then when she's asking about it, I'm like, she didn't make it. That would also have a very, you know, less tragic. Well, maybe, um, (laughs) Depending on how hungry the wife is, especially when she's pregnant. Uh, You know, then then it would be very tragic. But you see how that same statement can have many different meanings, but you have to understand the situation. You have to understand the context. And if you don't, so what if those three situations were going on at the same time and I had three different people texting me and I accidentally sent, you know, the she didn't make it to the person asking about the hospital situation and i thought i was responding to my wife about some food that didn't show up and then then all of a sudden that person is going to be devastated you know why they got the wrong idea because you know that their that text you know it wasn't meant for that situation and often we put scriptures and we try to make them fit into certain situations, try to make them teach certain doctrines, and they're not doing that. And then when we do that, we make really big mistakes, we cause confusion, and then a lot of times, too, you know, we use a passage for so long to kind of teach certain doctrines that we don't even understand what the passage itself is about, and then we get confused on difficult passages. So, uh, you might not think that it's a big deal you know, understanding who this is written to, but I'm telling you, it's a big deal, and it's going to be a big deal as we go through this book. And it's going to be a big deal too, because I'm going to show you something at the end of this chapter that people often do that misuses 1 Peter chapter 1. They make it talking about something it is absolutely not talking about. And it, and it it's obvious even if you don't understand that it's written to save Jews. But you know, when you when you do fully understand that, said, you know, and I, I've done it before too. And you, you know, it's one of these things. That's why I study through books like this, so I can correct, I can correct all my errors <laughs> that I've made. But, uh, and I said, and I've made a few errors uh, it, before, and I'll say this particular error I made it because I repeated what I heard, and I heard it a lot. That's how we make a lot of our errors. Don't just run with everything you hear, even if it's from a Baptist pulpit. Watch out for that. So. Um, but yeah, when we're reading epistles in the Bible, specific context is not always going to be included because the intended audience didn't need it. But what we just need a full, whatever we need to fully understand something, we will be able to find it when we need it. If God wants us to understand it, we'll be able to find it in the Bible. But we might have to do a little bit of work. So we need to also understand that there are going to be some things that no matter who it's written to, now, get this, because I am acknowledging that it's important that we understand who a passage is written to. But here's what we also have to understand, too, because people are going to want to get defensive because of what, the, what a lot of people try to do with Matthew 24. But here's what you got to understand. Here's a massive difference, all right? Because no matter who a letter is written to or a passage is written to, there's some things, sometimes the Bible is just giving facts, and the facts aren't going to change. With different audiences, y'all understand that. So, for example, if I write a letter to my wife, you know, to my wife, and on there I state, you know, when my birthday is, anybody could read that letter and learn the truth of when my birthday is, you know, because I'm I'm stating a fact in there. And often in the Bible, like in Matthew 24, for example, Jesus is saying what is to come. Jesus is giving prophecies about the destruction of the temple, prophecies about the second coming of Christ. He's giving all these things. He's laying out facts. And then we look at the facts and say, well, Jesus says this event's going to happen before this event. And then they're like, don't even pay attention. That's for the Jews. Okay, well, even if it is for the Jews, I'm fine with giving them that. It doesn't change the order of events. It doesn't change the facts that are laid out. Now, it can help give, it can give us context. It can help us understand why Jesus said some of the things that he said when we, when we acknowledge those things. But, certain facts aren't going to change just because a different audience is reading it. So, hopefully that all makes sense. So, I'm not telling you, you know, just throw out everything you read in the Bible. There's nothing we can get. No, there's plenty we can get. All scripture is profitable. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, uh, but at the same time, we don't need to read every book like it's written with instructions directly to us. Okay? If you plant a garden, you are allowed to eat trees from the, out of the tree from the midst of the garden. Okay. That was a command for Adam. And you need to and so you're you're allowed to do that. That is not a command to gardeners today. It was it was for them, and so uh, you know, watch out for that. If if we followed some people's logic that they use when coming up with commands and things to tell people to do, if they interpreted the Bible consistently, they would have to also preach that we shouldn't eat fruit from the midst of a garden, and that would be a really dumb, dumb practice. But uh, I, I can see some people doing it. But anyway, verse three says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance that he's talking about is unlike the inheritance that vanished away with the first covenant this inheritance that he's, Peter's talking to these saved Jews about is an incorruptible inheritance, unlike their corruptible inheritance that they had before. And, no, and notice, too, and keep remember this passage, because this goes into what we're going to be seeing later, that this inheritance that they have is something that they have because of uh, they have been begotten again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's very important to remember. These people had been begotten by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because they had been begotten by Jesus Christ, another term we could use for that is born again. Because they had been born again, they now have an inheritance, one that is incorruptible. And uh, and so, this is, this is a good thing. Because in Hebrews 8.13, it says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Those things of the Old Testament. And when I say the things of the Old Testament, I might say more about this than one of the other messages. Uh, 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 there's a lot that I would need to cover on this. But have you ever wondered why is it that the Bible often talks about the things of the Old Testament like it's on its way out? Shouldn't it have immediately been gone at the renting of the veil of the temple? Well, actually, it should have been. It, you know, that's when God was done with it, for sure. But you got to understand those things. Okay, those specific things, the gold and the silver vessels, those elements of the temple, those things were still around. And obviously, any Jew is still going to have kind of a attachment to those things. You know, it's kind of like even for us. I still have a little, an attachment to the building over on Ninth Avenue. You know, I kind of miss the place sometimes. And the, the other day, I just went drive by, drove by there for fun, see what they're doing doing there. I went by there one time because he had got some of our mail. I was hoping he was going to invite me in. He didn't invite me in. I wanted to see what he was doing with the place. But, um, you know, imagine a building that you had, you know, that had been in your family for generations, I mean, for generations, and that was the center of everything for them, religiously speaking, and so the thing is, those things were, were still there, and they needed to go away completely, and you know what? They eventually did. We'll talk about that later, where uh, in, in a later message, where God completely got rid of them, okay? So, but that's why we see that kind of language, because the things were still there. They weren't doing anything. They weren't... Getting anybody saved, atoning for sins, or anything like that, but uh, they were still around, and it was only a matter of time, and they were just going to be gone, L- literally, gone. Understand? God was done with the temple at the death of Jesus Christ, but the temple was still the temple was still there, and it needed to go, and it did, and it did eventually go. So uh, we'll probably say more about that later. But in verse five it says, "Who are kept." By the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And the last time, this is a reference to the final age that began in the first century. One of the areas where we have bad terminology still in the uh, in the futurist world is when we call what we're living in the last days, meaning, you know, like... You know, if if we—it's—it's not technically wrong to say we're in the last days. We're definitely in the last days. But when you use that term to say, "Well, we're in the last days," you know, because of something specific going on, as if you know, ten years ago they weren't in the last days. Technically, that's not right. Okay, technically, you're wrong in doing that because the last days started in the first century. And so, whenever we do that, we end up confusing people. People get confused. People that are new to the Bible, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna hear us say, "Man, well, we're definitely in the last days." You know, look what's going on with the vaccine, and you know, it's getting close to the mark of the beast. We're definitely in the last days. Well, yeah, we're definitely in the last days because Peter said we were in the last days. Paul said we we're in the last days. I mean, it, it's very. If there's, there's no doubt about that. But then what happens? You know, a younger Bible student might start studying their Bible one of these days. I think. Well, I thought we were in the last days because they're about to roll out the mark of the beast. According to the Bible, they were in the last days two thousand years ago. Where is the promise of this coming? And we're going to see that later in the book of Peter. That's why we want to make sure you know bad terminology has done more to cause confusion on this end time stuff. And and we gotta uh, we gotta make sure we use good terminology on things. But um, so. And in verse, so here in verse 5, too, when he says, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, this clearly does not teach that salvation began during the last time, but that it was revealed in the last time. Okay, The Old Testament saints, they had salvation as well, but the source of their salvation had not been revealed to them like it has been revealed to us during their time, you know, they did the offerings. They did the sacrifices and all these things. And and why did they do those things? They did those things, you know, by faith. They did them because they trusted God, but their salvation was not in those offerings that they did. Their salvation it was in Jesus Christ, but he had not revealed it to them yet. So as long as they had faith in what had been revealed, they were fine. And so, Ruckmanites, they're kind of doing a straw man argument, you know, when they're, like, forcing us to show, you know, where, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection in the Old Testament, and they'll talk about how the disciples before the death, burial, and resurrection didn't understand it, and therefore it was a different gospel that they were preaching. No, it was the same gospel, but yeah, they weren't talking about the death, burial, and resurrection because that hadn't been revealed yet. But when they were talking about Jesus Christ understand he was the source and god ended up revealing you know during his time where that salvation was at and it was in through jesus christ and specifically what he did the work of jesus christ his death burial, and resurrection jesus christ is that salvation when simeon saw the baby jesus what did he say we talked about the other day my eyes have seen thy salvation so uh salvation did not start In the last times. It was revealed in the last time. And salvation is 100% through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who trusted in the shadows got the same salvation that you and I have. And so, uh, you you know, obviously we're required to acknowledge those things today because they've been revealed. So somebody who talks about a salvation without the death, burial, and resurrection today Is not talking about the same salvation that we had or that they had. So there have always been lies of the devil, but now that salvation has been revealed as being in Jesus Christ. So understand, Satan was always going after Israel, you know, throughout their history, and specifically, you know, it it seems like he tried to destroy them through sin, false gods, like he was trying to get God angry at him so God would destroy them. But you know, now Jesus Christ has come. He's made offering for sin. Sin can't get saved people in trouble anymore. Not not with eternity, anyway. And so Satan now that salvation has been revealed as simply being through Jesus Christ, it makes sense that Satan now would have to come up with a counterfeit. And he would have had to do this after the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know what he did? He came up with Antichrist, another Christ. Fine, all right, it's been revealed as Jesus Christ. I'm going to come up with a counterfeit. I'm going to come up with another one, and that's today. It's what we they call it, Judaism, is is ultimately what it is. But Judaism's not the only form of Antichrist that's out there too. We also have Catholicism that's out there, uh, where there, there's de- that's definitely an Antichrist religion as well, but uh, this is why there's always going to be similarities in false religions and this you know, because it's counterfeit. Right. Counterfeit money looks like real money. Yeah. But there's differences. And this is why doctrine matters. This is why it's important that we study. This is why the Holy Spirit matters Amen. too. This is why we should also look at the spirit of things. Not just the letter yeah. of things. There's a lot of churches that have the letter down. Yeah. The spirit's not there. You know what that is? It's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. we got to watch out for that. And that's another sermon for another day. But Jude also shows we're in the last time. And Jude 1.18 says, uh, how, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. So, uh, again, when we see that it's so clear in the Bible that the last days started back then, you know, we probably shouldn't use that term you know, when we're seeing things that look like it's gearing up towards revelation, you know, we should we should call it something else. Okay, you yeah, know, I don't, I haven't come up with anything yet. But when you just say "last days," you're kind of sending a confusing message when you do that because we have been in the last days for two thousand years. So, uh, you're there. Nobody's wrong when they say it, but they might be confusing people. And and it is technically wrong if you're saying it in a way as though the previous generation wasn't. Because they were in the last days, and so are we. And so, um, 1 Peter 1, six says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season it need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under the praise and honor and glory of at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And notice how he talks about gold that perishes. Okay? I think that's important too. We'll see more about that in a little bit. But notice too how he refers to the the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is another term we should pro- we probably shouldn't use the term rapture. We should probably call it what the Bible calls it, the appearing of Jesus Christ. But you know what? The pre-tribbers don't want us calling it the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because then we might think the glorious appearing is the appearing of Jesus Christ too, which it is. And then we might start thinking, behold, he cometh with the clouds and every eye shall see him. It is also talking about him. And we might end up, you know, getting pushed away from the pre-trib doctrine. So again, you know what? We need to be in their face and we need to use the right terminology and call it the appearing of Christ. And then make them tell us that they don't think this is talking about the rapture when it talks about the appearing of Christ. And you know what? Some will go as far as to say that, like Ruckmanites, that's why they try to make you know, Hebrews you know, through Jude, they try, or they try to make them tribulation epistles, which is absolutely foolish. These are not tribulation epistles. They say they're tribulation epistles to the Jews. No. They were epistles to Jewish believers, but the first century ones. And I, they literally teach that, and it blows my mind, but people do anything to protect their pet doctrines. But I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. But uh, verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. It was the sufferings of Christ were told by the prophets before they happened. So, folks, the death, burial, and resurrection is in the Old Testament. Okay? There's no doubt about it. It's in the Old Testament. So, but I, uh, you know, doesn't seem very clear to me. Doesn't seem like they see, I I don't see David talking about that stuff. I don't see, you know, most. It says in verse 12, unto whom is what it was revealed? That not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The things that were written in the Old Testament by the prophets about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter said those things were written to them who preached to you. Because God didn't reveal the truth of those things to the prophets. Now, thank God, those prophets wrote what God told them to write, But the prophets often wrote things that they didn't understand. For example, Daniel. When Daniel wrote some of his prophecies, he didn't get it. And then an angel had to come explain it. And he still didn't get it. And that makes me feel good. Because I still struggle with some of the things I read in the book of Daniel. But you know what? I do believe that it's very possible that when it's all going down, God may just reveal it to those of us that it applies to. And so now that they are in this day of salvation that was prophesied to Israel, God revealed to the apostles what those passages from the Old Testament meant. And they went and they preached them to the Jews and they preached them to the Gentiles too. And let me tell you, Romans, okay, people want to act like different gods in the Old Testament. The Romans road that we use when you study those passages, okay, Paul in most of those passages is Referring back to Old Testament to prove a salvation by faith without works. Right. And pe- people forget that. They act like Paul's just writing some all, all new stuff. No, Paul is literally preaching from the Old Testament. Right. That's exactly what he's doing there. So, but understand, you know, Paul was able to do that because God revealed it. Why? Because it was the last time. It was the time of salvation. And God revealed it to them. And so now we see these things much more clearly. And, and, you know, and there's things that still are yet to come that we don't understand yet. And one of, those God, one of these days, God's going to give us another revelation. One of these days, there's going to be the re- another revelation of Jesus Christ when we all see him. And guess what? When that day comes, we're going to know about more about Jesus than we know now. And you know what that's not going to do? When we get new facts about Jesus and his return, you know what's not going to happen? It's not going to make him transform into a new Jesus. It's going to be the same Jesus. Just because we got more facts doesn't change the fact it's the same Jesus. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was what provided salvation or make it a new gospel. It's still the same gospel. And that's a concept I really wish some people could understand. But... Uh, dispensationalist. So what are you going to do about these people? So everything that happened with Jesus was prophesied but not understood by the prophets. Acts 3.18 says "But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And, and repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and He shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. There's many more prophecies, even from the Old Testament, that still are yet to be fulfilled and they will be fulfilled at the resurrection, at the return of Jesus Christ. That will be the restitution of all things. And so, um, so verse 13 says, Wherefore, Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so note, so this right here, what is this uh, hope? What is this grace that's going to be brought that he is specifically referring to? And I believe what he's talking about here, and we'll see uh, more clarity on this as we go, is the new body. The the glorified body, you know, the heavenly home, the the receiving the actual inheritance that was promised, that was referred to. All of these things are going to come when Christ returns. Now, we still don't deserve it, but we're going to get it, aren't we? We're going to to get all these things. And so he's telling them, gird up the loins of your minds, even though you're going through temptations and things, just understand what's coming for you. And because of what's coming for you, because of what has been promised to you, you know what? As obedient children, why don't you start, start being obedient? Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance. Don't act like you did before you got saved. And I get it. Saved people can act like lost people sometimes. I believe that. But don't do that. And Peter, you know, why? And you, these people, too, that act like, you know, salvation guarantees a change, well then why do we have to tell people about it so much? Why did they have to tell people about it so much? Why did they have to exhort them to constantly just be on them that they maintain good works? You know why? Because you're not just going to naturally do it. You're not going to naturally do it. We all need pushed. And so um, it says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner, of conversations, so we might have the same desires as the lost, and we're going to. But you know what? We know better, and God expects more from us. God's more upset, you know, with adultery and fornication from saved people than he is from lost people, because we know better. And okay? I, I, you might be tempted to do some of those things. You might be tempted to be foul mouthed. You might be tempted to lose your temper and things. But we've been called to holiness, and we know better. So God expects. More from us. So, uh, and notice too how Peter went to the law to exhort New Testament Christians to live holy. That was the Old Testament that he quoted. Be ye holy, for I am holy. So, notice verse 17. He says, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And now, notice that. And I think this is another reason he could have called them strangers because it, uh, he calls them that at the beginning of the passage, but I think it has a double meaning because they had been strangers as Jews who at one time they had a home in Israel, they had a headquarters, they had a temple, but they were still in other parts of the world. Now that they're saved, they're still strangers, aren't they? They're still strangers and pilgrims, but now they have a new headquarters. They have a new. They have a new home. In heaven, making them strangers on earth, no matter where they are, they're sojourners, just like Abraham was, and you know what? We are too. Right? We're we're strangers on this earth. Now, watch this, and I, and this is this verse right here is important. We understand that that the context, understand that these are first-century Jews who at one time looked to the things of the temple, not just the building, the vessels, that candlestick, that table of showbread. That Ark of the Covenant, these things that were made of gold, they looked to those things. That brazen altar where they would offer up these sacrifices, they looked to those things. They had uh, a claim on those things. All those things were important. The Bible spends a lot of time in the Old Testament giving the specifics of these things. But notice what Jesus said to these people, and this would have been significant for them. Yes, it's true about us too. But it would have been even more so for them because he says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions of your fathers. None of us ever tried to be redeemed by silver and gold, did we? None of us have ever looked for redemption in a temple or anything like that. But they did. They did at one time. And we know that when Jesus came, first off, the way they were doing things were completely wrong. Their traditions had taken over and had made the Word of God of none effect. And they had actually put a greater emphasis on those things than they were supposed to. They they you know, they still had the circumcision, but they didn't have the circumcision of the heart. They had the letter. They didn't, they didn't have the Spirit. And so their fathers failed them greatly by their traditions, and their traditions were specifically things that involved the things of the temple and the silver and gold, things that they had made misused. And so I think that this makes it clear again that they are Jews because that's something that the Jews had been doing, and he referred to them as their fathers. This is what your fathers did. And this is you know, this is the same kind of thing Jesus went after the Jews for. So in verse 19 he says, You know, so you weren't redeemed with things of silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, just like they used to have to get a spotless lamb back back in the day. Jesus was that lamb, no blemish, no spot. This would have had special revel, uh, relevance to them. Um, wouldn't have meant as much to a Gentile. I mean, and, and imagine too. We know all about the Jewish stuff because we study it. We've got the Old Testament in our Bible. But imagine being a first-century Gentile. You know, why would you say that kind of stuff to Gentiles? You know, it really wouldn't have meant much to them. None of, they, did, they probably didn't know a whole lot about those things of the Old Testament and definitely never thought they were redeemed by any of those things. I mean, the Bible teaches they weren't even looking for salvation. So saying something like that to a Gentile wouldn't have meant a whole lot, but it would have meant a whole lot to Jews. And so verse 20 says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So what Jesus did, it was always God's plan. The cross was plan A. It was always God's intention for Jesus to go to the cross. It just hadn't been revealed until the last time for them. So verse 21, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And love of the brethren, looking out for one another, very important for Christians. Now watch this. This says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now let me ask you a question. What is the corruptible seed? I always thought it was the NIV Bible. I, you know, that's what I always heard. You know, I always heard it was false version of the Bible. Man, you can't get saved from those other Bibles. The Bible says being born again, out of incorruptible seed. Those are incorruptible seed. Or corruptible seed, I'm sorry. Those are corruptible seed. Hey, listen. Messing with the Bible is horrible. Uh, I would never try to get somebody saved from another version of the Bible uh, that would just be a waste of time. there's so many problems in there okay but the NIV is not the corruptible seed or other versions not the corruptible seed that it's talking about you know what the corruptible seed is okay what's that? no I'm going to show you it's, it's real clear here in fact you know, you know, let's go let's go burn some corruptible seed. Burn some, I'm, all for, I'm all for burning false Bibles too, by the way. Alright? But you know what? I don't want to go have a corruptible seed burning. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because y'all want to know what corruptible seed is? It's this flesh. Okay? It, it's this flesh. I, I'm going to show you that here. The corruptible seed is our flesh. It says... Uh, now, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15.50, it says, Now this I say, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Right here, Paul refers to the body in a chapter that's all about the resurrection and the new body. He calls what this is, corruption. Corruption can't inherit incorruption. You know, that's why we need a new body. And that's why, then he goes on to say, "Behold, I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Oh well, Paul's using a different illustration. I I know Peter was referring to the NIV Bible uh, when he wrote this here. You know, it's so it's so important we get that. But no, let's keep reading. Um, in verse 24, because none of the Jews were saved because they were Jews, but because of the word of God. The other place, and and none of the Jews were saved because of the things of the temple. <clears throat> And the other place in the Bible where we see this term of being born again is when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Jew, and he said you must be born again. But look what it says here in verse twenty-five. But the word of the Lord, or no, I'm sorry, verse twenty-four. For all flesh is his grass. Why did it bring up the flesh? Because you're not you're not special because of your flesh. You have to you have to let Jews know that, okay. Now we're not very good at his Baptists when we're going around putting them on a pedestal and lifting them up and telling them how great they are and the chosen people. But you know you know what they are? They're corruptible seed. And so are we. So so are we. We're, we're corruptible seed too. And so we you're not born again by those those things. We're born again by the incorruptible seed, by the word of God, for all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which the gospel was preached unto you. So right there we see that he's showing these Jews here, you got saved by the word of God. You want to know why I'm saved today? It's because the word of God says, whosoever believeth. That's why. The Bible tells us that for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible promises us salvation to all who believe. So if anyone believes, and guess what, they're saved by the Word of God. And it's and that is what saves us. And but the, what does not save anybody is their flesh, their race. I don't care. You could be the most purebred Jew in the world, and. Not going to do you any good. You know what? It's corruptible seed. The the flesh is corruptible seed. And you are saved because of the gospel was preached to you. You received it by faith. And then God saved you. He cleansed you. He did everything that comes with salvation. You have nothing to boast about. And you know what? I think this crowd knew it. But you know what? Peter, in the first chapter, in the introduction of this, he's just reminding them of it. He's taught them these things and he would need to teach them these things because we do see that Judaism uh, was still trying, you know, they were, there were Jews that were constantly trying to push this stuff in these churches. The Hebrew root stuff was going on back then. And so Peter makes it very clear. So when you understand the context and who he's writing to, all of a sudden these things kind of have a little deeper meaning. You understand a little more. And when you understand that too, you're going to see that corruptible seed and you're going to realize yeah, he's talking about flesh. Because he's talking to Jews who made a really big deal about their flesh. And we also know it's flesh because then he goes on the next verse to say, it's flesh. <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those, <laughs> duh, kind of things. But you know what, man, it sounded good at the KJV conference when the guy got up there and said that. I mean, And so, I, I, I hate to burst your bubble tonight and take away your... Uh, verse to trump all those NIVers, you know, with their corruptible seed. Listen, you can call those Bibles whatever you want, but the corruptible seed of First Peter one is flesh. It's it's corruptible seed, and we need that sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to be born again. So with that, let's pray, dear Lord. I pray this message was a blessing and helped everyone. And Lord, we thank you so much for what you did uh, for us when you saved us. Help us always to. Uh, give you all the credit for everything and continue to proclaim this word to everyone out there. Just be with us as we uh, study through these passages. And Lord, I pray you will just give clarity as we go through these books. In your name we pray. Amen.